Welcome, sports fans. You have entered the man cave of the one and only Fan Man, broadcasting from his lazy boy recliner somewhere in the Vale of Paradise known as Valparaiso, Indiana. Welcome, sports fans, to the Fan Man Podcast. This week, we're going to put a bow on the NCAA tournament. We will recap the final four games and give a look at what teams will be competing next season for a trip to the final four and a possible 2022 championship. But before we begin, let me introduce the Fan Man Podcast guru of NCAA basketball, Chad Lincoln. How you doing this morning, Chad? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic and uh, can't wait to uh, talk about this Final Four. And man, I think we covered everything. We, we, we've been talking uh, about, NCAA tur- about the NCAA tournament all the way from the first four. We talked about all those games to the 32, to the Sweet 16, right? To the Elite Eight, to the, and today the Final Four. So anybody listening out there check out our ncaa tournament podcast because we break down every game right and it wouldn't be complete chad right unless we talked about the final four today exactly you you don't want to leave out the most important games of the tournament yeah and uh we're gonna walk through the final four right now and then again we'll talk about what the landscape looks like for 2022 a little bit the first game that we're going to talk about boy oh boy this was um this was a snoozer, unfortunately. I was, I was hoping for a, you know, I was hoping, for, I had a feeling Baylor was going to do this, but I was hoping, hoping for hope, I guess, Chad, right? Uh, Baylor, 78, Houston, 59, and Baylor put up that 45 spot in the uh, first half. And we know Houston, not a real powerful scoring team, but a solid defense, but they put up a 20 spot in the first half, 45 to 20, and Baylor, you know, Baylor, me, you, all of us were on automatic pilot, just kind of like uh, uh, with our eyelids possibly closing in that second half, right? Yeah, that the game, it, it started out 11-1 to 1 before the first time out. It was just like when you saw that Baylor was running up a track meet level situation in the first four to five minutes, it was like this game is probably over already. Right, yeah, and they just uh, ran them out of town. And you're watching that, and you're thinking, hmm, maybe Gonzaga. We'll see what happens, right? But, I mean, they just they just went at it hard, and um, Houston had really had no answer. I mean, you knew if the, if the shots weren't falling for Houston, you knew they were going to be dead in this, right? Yeah, they just could not find the bucket for the water. Right. Jared Butler scored all of us 17 points for Butler, Butler, Baylor, in the first half. But just about everyone from Baylor – Got into the act with five players scoring in double figures. <clears throat> Baylor built that 45-20 halftime lead and coasted the rest of the way. Marcus Sasser had 20 uh, points in this game uh, for the Cougars. Uh, Davian Mitchell is just some kind of player, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. What a floor leader, too. And, and it's really scary, you know, for the defender when he get when he's dribbling the ball at the top of the key and they start widening the lanes for him and you know what's going to happen um he's just breaking people's ankles isn't he yeah i mean the way that the team was opening up opportunities not only for mitchell to get the assists but to get inside and get around that houston defense yeah it, it was over for houston and they knew it right damian mitchell i mean 
what a quick first step he has. Like the likes of maybe we haven't seen in a while. Yeah. Unreal, it, right? It's like you could say that his first step is almost as good as saying Allen Iverson. Yeah, yeah, right. And then once, and he, and the thing about him is that he's a he's not you know he's a strong guy too. And when he gets up that that head of steam going out going to the basket, you got to foul him. I mean, otherwise he's just going to put the ball in the basket. I mean, he he can he can penetrate with the best of them, and he's very strong around the rim. Definitely was. Yeah, he, he made that game watchable. Right. Sure. Right. Mitchell finished with uh, eleven assists, while Houston had ten as a team. Mitchell is the fifth player to have more assists than the opposing team combined in a Final Four game since assists became official in 1984. And that's probably all you needed to know, right, about the game a little bit there? At that point, yeah. Yeah. Baylor finished with 23 assists as a team, the most by a team in a Final Four game since UNLV in the 1990 championship game versus Duke uh, when they had 24. Mitchell scored or assisted on 38 of Baylor's 78 points. Mitchell was responsible for 38% of Baylor's points in the uh, NCAA tournament leading up to the final game. Baylor led by 25 points at halftime. That was the fourth largest lead at halftime of a Final Four game of all time and the largest since Kansas's 29-point uh, uh, game against Marquette in 2003. So this was all Baylor. And, and you know, I had kind of, I think everybody, if they were being honest, figured out this was going to happen. I think in this one, huh? Yeah, I, I mean, Baylor's de- or offense was going to overtake the Houston defense by quite a bit, just because of the fact that Baylor would run up and down the court all season and knew how to get around those those spots where they were being trapped or being told uh, you're not going to get past us today. But they just did it right. And looking at Houston, of course, they had a first round game against Cleveland State, and they won that. Then they went and played the Rutgers Scarlet Knights in the second round and had a tough game there, right? Yep. And we're talking about the team that played all double-digit seeds. Right. We're not, they didn't have a number like a number two Iowa or a number three team in there, or four or five. They had all 10, 11, 12, 13 type teams. Yep. And give them a little credit, though. You know, their next game in the Sweet 16 – was against Syracuse and Syracuse K even though they were a, a pretty high had a high number seed but they were a pretty hot team with Bayheim and the rest of the crew going into that game right yeah and even Syracuse wasn't supposed to be where they got to right whether it was the tournament in general or it was their seed right getting far. so 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 as we talk about Houston here I mean they're making the run right now that they that they should have made getting to the you know playing in that sweet 16 and then I guess they got a little lucky. Illinois gets bounced in the tournament, and they find themselves playing the Beavers, right, in the Elite Eight? Yep. And um, now Houston got off to a nice lead in that game, but the Beavers, as we know, hung in there tough. Made it. I think they tied the game in the second half, but then Houston pulled away, and uh, Houston wrapped up that one. But um, that was a good effort for Oregon State. But So Houston gets themselves to the Final Four, and again, sitting there with Baylor, you can go back and you say, yeah, they should have beat Cleveland State, they should have beat Rutgers, they should have beat Syracuse, should have beat Oregon State, but now they're playing Baylor, right? So the handwriting was on the wall. Yeah, they they hit their mountain and the peak just gave out on them. Right, so good season for Houston, right? Though, I mean, you can't, you know, even though they didn't win the Shocker, 
they got where you know they were expected to get, I suppose, right? Yeah, especially for a team out of the American Athletic Conference that isn't quite known for anything more than being that other conference that's trying to be a power conference. That's right. That's right. So uh, anything else, Chad, on this game? Any comments on this uh, you, this uh, Baylor game against Houston anymore? I almost kind of wish Baylor would have been able to run this game up, but I think they saved a little more because they knew that if they had Gonzaga in the championship game, they'd have to have some energy left over for that one. So yeah. save some things for what they need to do there instead of running up the score heavily on a Houston team. Right, right. And uh, for people who didn't see a lot of Baylor basketball during the season that tune in, of course, you know, you get the casual fan watching the Final Four. And this is a great Baylor nucleus of about eight guys, right? They got the three bigs. Then they got uh, Meyer, who really gives Baylor quality minutes, doesn't he? He can, he, he can play defense. He hustles. He can even shoot a three, right? So those those four bigs, I'll call them bigs because Meyer's not a small guy. Um, and then you've got the four guards that are just, I don't know if I've seen better, really. And I know I don't like to give praise, and I never like to say the best of all time and all that, and I won't this time. But you put those four guards with those four bigs, and it's a heck of a nucleus rotation of eight players, ain't it? It sure is. Mm. I mean, they, they all had their roles, too, which is great. Yeah, Scott finds the guys to fill the spots, but also fills the roles needed to make that team be a team, not just one or two or three individuals that can help carry them all through the season. Right. That's right. All right, so let's move on and and let's talk about this wild game between, um, boy, oh boy, UCLA and Gonzaga. And um, I'm going to say this, right? I knew it. So so Gonzaga goes up 45 to 44 at the half. Right, and I kind of thought Baylor. You know, we predicted me and you. Let's give ourselves some credit there. We predict predicted Baylor over Gonzaga, but after that first half, I was very comfortable with my pick of Baylor over Gonzaga. After I saw how UCLA and no no discredit to UCLA, but it's forty five forty four, and UCLA is in the mix here in this game. And I'm like, well, man, is this you know? I think Baylor is going to be okay here. You know, after watching that first half, and then the second half. What close, you know, another one point the other way, and then it goes into overtime, and we're going to talk about how this all went. Ninety-three to ninety, Gonzaga wins. We all know he wins it on the on the Jalen Suggs. I don't know. Hail, can I call it a hail mary? What do you think? Considering he had time <laughs> to to run down, it was more like a Tyus Edney almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except for the fact that he didn't get all the way to the rim in four seconds, he got about fifty feet away and up a dream shot right and of course this game will be in you know in folklore forever in the NCAA tournament I suspect when the 2022 tournament starts they're going to be replaying this several times throughout uh, next March and and everything for years to come but Chad I want to ask you this right doesn't now of course you know now this has kind of been labeled and after the game it's like watching a it's like watching a good movie right when you go to the movie theater and you watch a good movie you come out with a high and you say man that might have been the best movie I ever seen, you know? And after this game was over, you had Gumble, you had the other guys in the booth, Kenny Smith and all that. And there was a talk that, and it's it was a talk the next day from a lot of people that this was the greatest college basketball game, NCAA tournament college basketball game of all time, the greatest, right? 
But and, and I'm not going to ask you if it was. If you, if you want to tell me it was, that's fine. But the real question I got with this, and like all sports now, it seems like everything that happens now is the greatest of all time, right? I mean, is everybody, no one is going back and saying, hey, let me pause here and let me look back at the last 25 years of NCAA basketball <laughs> and, and let me look in that microscope before I label this the greatest game of all time. I know it's got to be one of the greatest, but... Don't we have a tendency to do that now in sports? We do a lot because of the fact that it, it works well for like a Twitter debate or for something that you can put on Facebook as a debate. Because yeah. of the way that people like to leave their comments on, oh, this wasn't the greatest tw- out of the 25 games that I've seen that have been better or this didn't stand up to, say, the Michael Jordan shot in the championship game back in 84. It didn't stand up to... The Lorenzo Charles situation with NC State, it didn't stand up to this or that. In my case, I can't really say that because I didn't see them for myself when they happened because I was... Well, then you had the shot, the Villanova shot from a few years back too, the big shot. Yeah, that one I missed because I was at work that night, but I heard a lot about it. Right. And it had been the most recent buzzer beater that really mattered prior to the shot on last Saturday. Um, I mean, to me, the one that was probably the most dynamic... NCAA shot that really meant something to me was probably the Christian Leitner over Kentucky shot, but that happened in the regional final. That wasn't in the final four. Right. So when a lot of people bring that up as the greatest, it's like, but after that shot, something better could have happened. Duke may not have made the final four, or not so much made the final four, but they may not have made the championship game that year. Yep. So anything could have happened there, but this shot was an epitome of getting to the championship game so in that rank i would put it up there's probably in the top five of final four slash national championship shots but i wouldn't say it's one of the greatest right yep so here's how this works right so for advertising purposes for cbs this shot will always be around for them right to promote the ncaa tournament and they'll replay that and they'll replay suggs jumping on the table afterwards and the whole the whole gang getting together with him and, uh, you know, really, really going crazy after the game, right? So the, so for advertising purposes, they'll always have that. But I got to think if I'm a Gonzaga basketball fan now, after losing to Baylor, it's kind of bittersweet to go back and watch. And I think that's kind of the situation. And this kind of situation reminds me of the, and I'm dating myself, but I'm going to go back to, and we've all seen this, the famous home run by Carlton Fisk in the 75 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. It was game six, and he hit that homer, and he's running to first base, and he's waving his arms to make sure that it stays in play, and it's a home run over the wall. The Red Sox win game six, but the Red Sox the next day lost game seven. So it's kind of the same thing in this regard, I felt, because as a, as a Boston Red Sox fan, every time I watch Fist's home run, it's a little bittersweet knowing you lost game seven. So in this situation, as a Gonzaga fan, I would be watching this like, oh, that was an unbelievable, man, I love Jalen Suggs, a just unbelievable thing. But at the end of the day, obviously, if they would have beaten Baylor, and it's a whole different way you look at that, right? I think this this situation with Suggs would have been different if it wasn't for the fact that he can't d- declare for the draft until, say, his junior or after he graduates seasons, after yeah. his junior year season. Because they'd have at least two more years to be able to see what he does. That's a good point. But with yes. the, way that the NBA is the yes. one and done thing where you can declare 
one year out of high school. We right. haven't hurt yet, but it's possible that he ends up leaving for the NBA. Yep. Or he goes overseas to get some money because he's got some things to work on. But Gonzaga's not going to help him with that because the conference that he's in is terrible. And Gonzaga only really gets attention when they're playing somebody that's high priority, like a BYU or if they're playing some game that ESPN set up for them. Right. So, Chad, that was the first time in this episode of the the podcast we've mocked on Gonzaga's schedule. I think we go, what, about five times each podcast on that? Pretty much, because it's just one of those easy (laughs) schedules to go, you know, if they would have just played a few better teams, what would they have been? You know, would they have been more competitive? Would they have set UCLA aside a lot sooner? Um as we'll preview with, or we'll talk about with the championship game, you know, would they have been a bit more challenging for Baylor? Right. But yeah. Yeah. A lot of times with Gonzaga, it's up in the air. I mean, this one for them over UCLA makes me think back to, and I wasn't there when it happened, but the miracle on ice. Okay. Herb, yeah. Herb yep. Brooks said, we won this game, but we still had to play Finland for the gold. Right. Right. Beating Russia was not the gold medal game. That's right. That's another this great was, example. Yep. This was not the national championship game, which had it been, this would have gone down in infamy. Yeah. The little guy beating the 11-time national champion. Right. For their first title would have been the story. But because this was in the final four and it didn't lead to Gonzaga winning, it... it will probably lose its luster in about five years. Yeah. To be honest with you. Like once Suggs and Kispert and all them become like the next Adam Morrison's, Casey Calvary's, Dan Dickow's, where it's like, what are they doing now? It's going to be a story that we are probably going to be like, well, whatever happened to those guys? Yeah. And uh, what would have been funny is, can you imagine if uh, UCLA would have done, would have hit that shot instead of Gonzaga and then Gonzaga would have been wiped out of the NCAA tournament on that 40-foot shot. And um, that people would have said, oh, by by luck, hypothetically, Gonzaga didn't win a national championship. So maybe it's better it went that way. So we could, we, so we all saw for ourselves that, that Baylor, quote-unquote, beat the best team in uh, college basketball, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of about, let's say, five or six years ago when Wichita State was going through the season undefeated in the Missouri Valley. Right. And they had Ron Baker and Fred Van Vliet and all those guys. Yeah. And they got to the NCAA tournament and lost in, I think, the round of 32 against, or no, the Sweet 16 against Kentucky. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't that the year they actually beat um, beat Kansas, didn't they, in that run? Or was that the year after? I don't know. I know one of those runs, they they beat Kansas in in the tournament. Yeah, I think it might have been the year that they made the national cha- or the final four. Okay. Unexpectedly. Yeah. Yep. All right. So getting back to this one again, let's recap it. Uh, Gonzaga ninety three, UCLA ninety. Uh, Johnny Juzang, what a what a performance! Huh? Twenty nine point six rebounds, two assists, and uh, he was on fire all night, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was doing this with his brother, who was back in town, or was there for the games yes. from the. Yeah, and they showed that in the pregame about how he didn't know his brother was coming until they saw each other, and Juzang had to be in the lobby while his brother was outside, right? And had to talk by way of phone. Yeah, 
And what's great about this guy, he's not just, yeah. And what's great about this guy, though, when we talk about him in particular, is that he's not just a guy that stands out there and is, you know, just sitting in the corner waiting for the ball to be thrown to him so he can take a shot. This guy can, this guy can, can, can play with it, you know, can, can go to, can drive to the basket. He can shoot. He can uh, face the basket and drive. He can face the basket and and shoot with a guy on him. So he's, he looks like he's NBA ready. Yeah, he's he's more the type of player that a guy like a Steve Alford grew up to be, where he worked on the different things in his game, not just the fact that he was the best shooter, the best yeah. player. He worked on the things to make him a better player. Right. So Kispert, first team All American, right? Pretty yep. And Juzang is not first team All American. And if you if you would have asked yourself who you know watching that game which guy should have been all american it should have been Juzang i guess right i would have definitely said that Juzang deserved more talk about being say a player of the year candidate or yeah, yeah. in those like Naismith and Wooden watch lists right Kispert only got there based on the fact that he was playing for a team that was undefeated and he was a senior right to me yeah that's great now that you're wanting to make sure you have enough seniors on there to make it a relevant list yeah, but in this case, he just—he didn't show up when the game mattered. Right, right. He did not. Drew Timmy for Gonzaga, twenty-five points, four rebounds, two assists. I mean, he did. He, you know, he had a he had a good game. But uh, that Riley kid for UCLA, you know, hung in there a little tough on him too, though, right? He gave him a little yeah. bit of a battle. Yeah, when he finally had somebody that was about his body ability to body up against him it, it shut him down quite a bit right and, and then the, and the, he ran problems with the foul trouble and and not planning his feet to really take charges that he should have right so after the game i'm sure the bigs for uh, baylor were sitting there in the, either in the locker room or at a hotel somewhere watching this and watching you know what riley was doing and they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves i bet I'm going to guess they probably didn't have the TVs on in the locker room for that purpose. Just to kind of play a mind game of let's focus on the game in front of us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how you, how, I don't know how you don't watch that though. For dinner. Yeah, I don't know how you don't watch that. I think it was basically they just didn't. They wanted to get the guys away from basketball for okay. a little bit because yeah. after their game it was dinner time. Yeah, the chance to relax away. Then that way it also gave the coaching staff time to be able to check out the video, look right. at the things they need to look at, and just focus on that instead of saying to the guys, "Just go watch the game and and screw around and have fun." Yeah, but it would be hard to believe they didn't watch the shot that was heard around the world though, because that shot. I mean, it was late by the time. Uh, I mean, they had plenty of time to rest before that big shot happened at the end. They did, but I, to be honest with you, yeah. as amazing as the shot was, you're not going to remember it outside of NCAA tournament weekend. Yeah. It's going to be just like when, say, Bryce Drew, Christian Leitner, Tyus Edney, any of those guys hit their big shots in their mm-hmm. careers. Right. You're not going to remember it until the NCAA tournament comes along. Yeah. So we talk about the shot, and of course, we're all talking about Jalen Suggs. Um, takes the ball, inbound pass, saw nothing but clear sailing, three dribbles, past the half-court line, a stutter step, boom, and straight into history. Um, Suggs banked in a shot at the buzzer from near the Final Four logo uh, for the win in overtime. 
Gonzaga at this point moves to 31-0. They were the first team to bring an undefeated record into the championship game since Larry Bird and the Indiana State uh, Sycamores in 1979. And we all know what the fate of Larry Bird in that game was. They ended up losing to a team led by one Magic Johnson. Actually, it was Irvin Johnson back then. The Magic didn't happen until later, right, Chad? <laughs> Yeah, they didn't come in until he got to the Showtime Lakers with Pat Riley. Right, and there was another great player on that team, Greg Kelser, who had, um, I don't want to say a cup of coffee, but he had some years in the NBA. Um, The game featured 15 ties and 19 lead changes, and the 11-seeded UCLA team that just would not give in all night, right? I mean, UCLA was there from, from wire to wire. In fact, they were the first team to lead Gonzaga in the second half over five games of, of the tournament play. And in fact, had a chance to win at the end of regulation. And I think I, I want to talk about two big, big other, two other big moments in the game, right? So with the game tied at 81, Juzang was taking it hard to the hoop in the final seconds when Zach's forward, Drew Timmy, playing with four fouls, stepped into the paint, planted his feet and took a charge. And I really think that was a charge. Are you okay with that charge? Yeah, I was okay with that. Right. And uh, I guess Timmy is just praying as he's falling on the ground, right? Waiting for the, right, looking at the ref, like waiting for the call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was a huge moment. And then another huge moment before that, Suggs' best play. And this was really some kind of sequence. I, I gotta, I'm going to say this. This may have been Gonzaga's final, uh, not final, finest moment of the entire season. Because you got a good glimpse on the best of Gonzaga here, right? Suggs, he rejects UCLA's big man, Cody Riley, and then uh, who was going for a dunk. And Suggs comes out of nowhere, right? And then all of a sudden, he feeds Timmy all the way down the other court for a dunk. And then you said, wow. That, that, so I think that might have been the signature play of the whole season, for other than the shot, I guess, right? Um, yeah. Of the whole season there. Because you got yeah, to see, you got to see what Gonzaga for, can do a little bit. Yeah, it definitely changed the momentum in the last two minutes because UCLA kind of felt like they were going to walk away with this and be like the stunner of the tournament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that last two minutes kind of told them we need to stand up a little taller and and do the right things and not just race on the fact that we've been ahead of Gonzaga this whole time. Right, right. They're coming back on us and we're just not sure what to do. Yeah, and. Um, Juzang had 29 points for the Bruins, including a 15-footer, which was just clutch, with 127 left in regulation. That helped UCLA claw back from a seven-point deficit to tie it at 79. And this, you know, the Yaquez guy is just a gamer, isn't he? Yeah. What he, a gamer. He's definitely one of those that you can rely on when you yeah. need him. Right. Was not afraid of Gonzaga. He handled Timmy inside, you know, handled Timmy as best he could, scoring 19 points. Huge free throws uh, Yak has had to tie it at 81 with 43 seconds left. And I hate to say this, Chad, but I wish I could go back and stop time there for UCLA because they had the ball, right, in regulation with Juzang, and they decided not to call timeout to set a play up. But they had, I, I suppose, what they wanted with Juzang going to the hoop there at the end. But I would have liked to have seen um, the coach for UCLA, you know, call a timeout there and just maybe – you know, dial something up where they could run Juzang off a screen for a game winner. What do you think? Were you okay with not the, not calling a timeout at the end of regulation with the ball, UCLA? I think it was a smart move to not do that because I think that's 
kind of what Mick, or uh, Mark Few would have expected, especially in a game that was this close. If it had been something where it was another team, yeah, they could have done it and gotten away with it. But I think in this case, he was expecting it to happen, but also kind of getting that feeling that Mick Cronin wasn't going to do it just because it would have it would have hurt the momentum that UCLA was trying to run with. Yeah. When you're stopping the game and giving them both, because in the NCAA tournament with the CBS contract, timeouts are not thirty or not sixty seconds for media timeouts or extended timeouts. They end up being like almost two and a half minutes. So that's almost like giving these guys a coffee break, and you don't want to do that if you, if you don't have a thirty second timeout left. Yeah, you don't want to be giving them a, a chance to long. get a full breath. Yeah, maybe it's too long, right? Yeah. Okay, I can go with that. I can live with that, right? So, um, UCLA versus Gonzaga and the 2016 North Carolina versus Villanova are the only two Final Four games since 1985 that featured multiple game-tying or go-ahead shots in the final five seconds. Uh, Maybe that's why they say this is one of the greatest. The game finished with 19 lead changes, the most in any NCAA tournament game this year. Um, Gonzaga and UCLA combined to shoot... 58%, 58%, the highest combined uh, field goal percentage in a Final Four game since 1985. Um, national Championship game between Villanova and Georgetown. We all know how that one went with Villa, Villanova upsetting Georgetown. Um, it was good also what UCLA was doing was, as you saw this early in the game, right? They tried to take the tempo away from Gonzaga. They're walking the ball up. It's a Campbell, right? The guard? Yeah, Tiger Campbell. Tiger Campbell, right, with the hair. Um, dribbling, the, you know, just kind of walking the ball up court, and you're like, hmm, I think UCLA, you know, I'm thinking UCLA's in it to win it here. You know, they're 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 taking the pace away away from you from uh, Gonzaga here, and and I think that's what helped them hang in there, right, a little bit. Yeah, having control of what you do, especially in a in a situation where you're playing a team that's used to running up and down the court and having their freedom to to do whatever they want. If you take control out of their hands and slow things down, they're not going to know what to do because they're having to look around and see where the ball went to, see where they need to be in the spacing and and how to if they're playing a box and one or anything, how to zone that properly and if the ball's moving too fast for them at that point because they had to slow down so much, they're going to be confused about what to do and that's what UCLA took advantage of. Right, that's right. Uh, Johnny Juzang finished with 137 points in the NCAA tournament. That's the second most by a UCLA player in a single NCAA tournament game. Okay, so when we say this second most by a UCLA UCLA player, as we all know, there has been some fantastic players in NCAA tournament uh, games over the years for UCLA. And two I can think of is Kareem Abdul. I mean, I can think of a lot, but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, right? I mean, those are two of the guys. I mean, uh, Reggie Miller. <laughs> we could we could talk about Reggie Miller. And what he did with the UCLA Bruins. So there's a lot of guys, but this was the second to Gail Goodridge, who had 140 points in the 1965 uh, NCAA tournament. And people can say, who's Gail Goodridge? Well, Gail Goodridge played many, many years for the Los Angeles Lakers and was the backcourt teammate of Jerry West, who's the logo of the NBA, right? Which is soon to change, yep. I think, right? <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> yeah, I had to get but- that. I had to get that in there. The other um, thing with Gail Goodrich, too, is he was brought in to be 
a piece to the puzzle, not just yes. the man back in a John Wooden team. Yes. Every every player he brought in was a piece to leading to a championship, to right. a winning season, to the things that were teachable moments about yep. the game. Right. Not just made the game. Right. And the other thing that I, I want to real quick mention, too, is if you look in the history books, it's going to be Lou Alcindor for UCLA, yes. not Kareem, even yes. though... These days we know him more as Kareem. Right. Back then he was Lou Alcindor. Lou Alcindor, that's right. And he, New York he was City. basically more one dimensional in terms of his scoring. He stayed within the basket. He didn't range out 15, 20 feet. Because at that point, also, he didn't have to. Three point line. <laughs> yeah. When you're seven feet tall, you yeah. stay in there. You're basically the giraffe. Right. And I mean, um, we can have, we can, yeah, we can have a whole show on this, Chad, talking about the greats of. Of maybe we should right the greatest players in college basketball history, greatest players in the NBA. To this day, I will say, and I'm not going to get into this with Michael Jordan, but 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 one of the most unstoppable shots in the history of basketball period was the sky hook by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or or Lou Alcindor. <laughs> yeah, because at that point nobody had ever really seen it. Right. Because everything was so under the rim, there was no there they hadn't legalized dunking yet. No. So, no, because dunking was technical at that point, either a technical foul or removal yeah. from the game. So they didn't even allow it. Right, and you can go back and watch those great NBA series between the Lakers and the Celtics. And although Kareem was old, he played through all those big games against Bird and McHale and Parrish, and he, you know, what a what a career he had. Mm-hmm. Especially that big win they had in Game Seven at the Boston Garden. Um, I think it was Game Seven, but they won the big game playoff game against the Lakers, and uh, that was like the the only thing maybe missing in Kareem's uh, arsenal there. But so many great players for UCLA. I, I don't want to leave anybody out, but one guy I keep thinking of too, who I just loved was that uh, was Keith Wilkes. Keith Silk Wilkes mm-hmm. was another great one. David Myers was another great one. Here I go. I'm going to leave a lot of people out, huh? Talking about UCLA. <laughs> it's basketball. all right. Yeah. But some great ones. Johnny Juzang is the second player in UCLA history with three 25-point games in a single NCAA tournament. And again, Gail Goodrich had four. Mm-hmm. Jalen Suggs, three-point field goal, uh, is the 10th game-winning field goal in the final 10 seconds in the final four or later. And the first since Villanova's Chris Jenkins. We all remember that one against North Carolina in 2016. And that probably aged Roy Williams about five years, that shot. A little bit, yeah. I think that <laughs> really kind of changed how he had to recruit players for the yeah. future. They had to be more defensive than they were offensive. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's kind of where, even as Roy Williams says today, the game changed for him was when right. everything completely stuck to the point where he was no longer the right person for the job. Yeah. Yep. And when you look at, you know, how some of these teams in the tournament can shoot, right? You look at the shooting in the tournament this year, and you say to yourself, how is a team, you know, traditionally West Virginia, not a spectacular shooting team, and then you had Georgetown in the playoff, in the NCAA tournament this year, kind of the same thing. You can't as much in Houston, okay, Houston with the defense. Defense is great, right? You got to play defense, but you can't. I don't think you could win this NCAA tournament unless you got those guys that could step behind that line and hit those threes. Yeah, they, they've definitely made the three point line the crucial thing so that so many teams are living and dying by what they do at the arc. 
if, if you're, you got to play a strong perimeter defense to stop the three point shooting, and if you don't have it, then you're basically sunk. Yeah, you can't win six games without it. Could without that shooting from three, right? Isn't it? Mm-hmm. And how about free throw shooting? We always forget about how important that is, huh? Because a lot of people are like, that's not the thing you're going to see on the highlight reel to win the game as much as you're going to see the game-winning three-pointer or the two-pointer from 15 feet out that's needed. It's like, but here's the thing, guys. You make your free throws, you don't need that 15-footer with less than four seconds to win by a point because you made your 15 free throws that you contested to get into because you cared about those more. Those are going to be the things that win you the games more right. than the fifteen footer that bounces and clanks and maybe gets the lucky roll. Right. To get it. And maybe it's those and you win the game. Yeah, maybe it's the word free that people forget about. They're free shots. Yeah. And in basketball, you're not supposed to get free shots. The the best thing though, or the worst thing, you don't really appreciate maybe these all these missed free throws until you look at the box score after the game. And you're sitting in the locker room, and we lost by two, and we shot like uh, you know eleven for twenty from the free throw line. Yep, and that's where a lot of times, especially in game-ending situations, is where you get a lot of teams who are like, okay, who do we need to make sure gets to the free throw line? Because a lot of times when you're listening to the commentators, especially the color commentator, he's going to be like, you don't want to foul this guy because he shoots eighty-eight percent from the free throw line. He's yeah. going to be clutch at this point. You want to go after the guy that's maybe a 58% free throw shooter that might make one out of two. Right. Yep. Not that it's going to hit both of them every time. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, when I watch some of these guys at the free throw line, I look at the form and I look how the ball is just bouncing off the rim. I, I say to myself, why, why aren't they, why aren't they trying to develop that aspect of the game? You know? I mean, a guy who could rebound, you know, after a while, you don't have to teach that anymore. But, like, why doesn't the guy that can rebound and play defense just say, you know what, I'm really going to spend a lot of time trying to shoot free throws here so I can stay in the games more? Because to most of them, it's a boring, monotonous maneuver. You're just standing there and you're shooting the ball. It's not like you're running to a certain point and then taking your jump shot. Like yeah. you wouldn't practice. And that's one of the things that, that Steve Alford always did. He'd shoot maybe 25, 30, 15 footers, whether he made all of them or not. And then as a break, instead of just standing there looking around for something to do or taking a Gatorade, he'd go to the free throw line and shoot 10 free throws. Yeah. Just to keep his motion and his mind moving. Right. Some of these guys, they don't get into that mindset. They think this whole mindset thing is a game that, that's not important to them. It's like that mindset is what gets you to be a better player is the fact you're doing the things that make you better. And free throws right. is one of the things that will make you better. Right. And another tactic I've seen or I heard about and uh, I've seen and heard about and participated a little bit in, but is the idea of, you know, we're going to run suicides. And after the first or two, second or third suicide, the coach says, okay, Joe, get on the free throw line. You got to knock these two down. If you knock them down, no one has to run anymore. Because now what, yep. what's going on is now you're playing with the kid's mind, and now the kid is also a little fatigued, which is kind of the same thing that's going to go on during a game. And uh, yep. I think that's a maybe that's a, you know that's a pretty good technique too to try to straighten some people out with free throws is is to get them understanding how important it is and uh, 
you know, because so, like you said, it's monotonous unless you come up with some kind of game that you can make it a little bit more competitive. Yeah, and I, my high school coach even used it every once in a while. Like, we, they do five suicides. Yeah. He brings somebody out to the free throw line. You hit these two, you're done running for the day. Yeah. It made them realize how important free throws can be because of the fact that it's like the pressure's on. How are you going to handle it? Right. And there was one day he even put me, and at this point I was a manager on the team, put me on the free throw line and said, you make these two, the guys don't have to run. Oh, wow. So while the pressure was on, Is I went it? up there and I hit both. Woo! All right. Chad's so sinking the free throws. Like, the, the manager did that. I'm like, because that to me was nothing. It's like I'm helping you guys out. That's right. It's a team effort. Exactly. Right? That's right. Like, I've seen you guys have to work hard. I've had to work hard to keep up with you guys on things that you had to do. And I've practiced my free throws. So, here you go. Here's your win. Go home and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's right. Okay, so now it's time for us to talk about the championship game between Baylor and Gonzaga. Both number one seeds. Baylor wins it 86-70. And Baylor took a halftime lead of 47 to 37. But at one time in the first half, I think they were up by either 18 or 19. One of those two numbers, they were up. Um, Well, let me ask you this before we talk about the game. Have you ever seen, okay, and I know this is another one of these loaded questions, but how hot did Baylor come out of the box? I mean, they were on fire. They couldn't miss if you you, uh, (laughs) made the basket any bigger. Yeah, even if you made it small, they they were hitting everything because right. they knew how to do it. And I don't, you know, Mark Few is a great coach and a smart guy, right? How long do you think it it went? How long did it take Mark Few to understand that he was in a dogfight to the very end, maybe, or or he was gonna, or he had no chance to win this game? I think in the first three minutes, I think Mark Mark Few was shaken already. I think he kind of realized with these guys, it's like they've had it way too easy this year. <laughs> I've got to do something to change yeah. their mind. Yeah. Because they've rested on the fact that every team that they played, for the most part, gave up early or they just weren't good enough for what we were doing. Yeah. And we'll kind of notice that when we look at the schedule later as we're talking about right. that Gonzaga had as to how the season progressed and what happened in this game. Yeah. So Gonzaga, you know, they had, again, Baylor was up in the first half by, I think, you know, 18 or 19 points, but then Gonzaga came back a little bit and finished pretty strong, right? I think at one point, um, you know, they were, I think they were even down by like nine at one point in the first half, but they, but they hung in there strong at the end and now they're down 47 to 37 and of course, the three, the four amigos. Let's see who was in the booth that night. It was uh, Clark Kellogg, Brian Gum, uh, not Brian Gumble, Greg Gumble, Greg Gumble, Charles Barkley, and Kenny Smith before the game. Yeah. Even Kenny Smith, they all pick Gonzaga to win. And yeah. now it's halftime, and it's forty-seven to thirty-seven. And it's kind of funny. I always love this when you get like four announcers in the beginning of the game saying who's going to win a game. And now it's halftime, and the team they said is going to win is losing. And you just, you know, you see, like, okay, now tell us what's going to happen, guys, right? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of cases, too, is they all have the uh, earpieces in, and whoever was directing what was being said and whatnot was saying, 
before the game starts, you have to basically be saying Gonzaga is going to win this game because we need the storyline of the first team since um, the 1976 Hoosiers to go undefeated and win the national championship. We need that storyline for this game. Otherwise, halftime is going to be like a complete and total, what do we talk about if Gonzaga is not winning or the game's really close? We don't know what to talk about there, so just basically run with the fact that Gonzaga is going to win because that's just what they've done all season, but really have no, no other real substance for it. Not realizing that Baylor had the better schedule because they played teams that were equal to what they can be. So it made them get better throughout the season. Yep. Yep. For sure. And um, so like at halftime, you know, now the second half, if you're, if you're watching this game, right, the question is going to be, you know, Gonzaga's down by 10. They're undefeated. So you want to give a little deference to Gonzaga and you're thinking, well, maybe Gonzaga's going to come out real hot, you know, in the beginning of the second half and cut it to like six and maybe get it down to four. And now we got a game, but it didn't happen, right? Yeah. Just didn't happen. It was all Gonzaga. Um, you know, pretty much the rest of the way, opening it up a little bit, you know, it, winning by uh, by 14 at the end, or actually winning by 16, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jared Butler, 22 points, three re- rebounds, seven assists. Jalen Suggs, 22 points, one rebound, and three assists in the game. Gonzaga shot 51%, but finished with a season-low 70 points after averaging a national best 91 points a game and... Maybe we chalk, chalk that up to um, the conference play there with you know with that big number averaging national best 91 points, right? Between the conference and the fact that Baylor yeah. actually played defense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A little bit there. The Gonzaga offense struggled to get clean looks early or make three-pointers. Um, you know, Kispert always had a hand in the face. A few times he wanted to shoot, but then there was a quick defender for Baylor just coming in, shutting him down. Um, a reliable defense couldn't slow the Bears' three-point shooting. Gonzaga's defense, you know, they talked about the defense, but the Bears could not miss all night. Baylor shooting the three. The Bulldogs couldn't keep Baylor off the glass and kept committing turnovers, and that was uncharacteristic of Gonzaga and good for the defense of Baylor. Um, all of a sudden now Gonzaga's tur- turning the ball over, um, sometimes just on their own, right? So they were, yeah. they were getting tense through that. By midway through the first half, Gonzaga had probably found itself down by 19. Again, we talked about that. Suggs for Gonzaga opened this game with a missed three-pointer. And that's right. That's another thing that set the tempo here. Suggs got two quick fouls on him early on. And that didn't help. That did not help the Bulldogs, right? Yeah, when your floor leader is basically taking himself out of the game because it's the first game since probably AAU season somewhere that he actually had somebody that could play defense on him or wanted to play defense on him and just not in awe of here's this freshman that was the highest ranked uh, pickup by Gonzaga ever that yeah. they're just what he can do Baylor's like who cares that he was the highest pick or highest player recruited to Gonzaga in their, in their time they've been Gonzaga it's right. just he's another player on their team let's go play defense against him and once Suggs sub through his defense play down, he didn't know what to do. Yep, that's right. Suggs eventually returned in the game, right, and was playing with – and it kind of like – I thought he was starting to play a little too passive with the fouls. Didn't you think at some points you saw there he was kind of like almost laying off his man just a little bit too much? 
that's kind of a freshman thing too. It's like yeah. I I'm trying not to get fouled out because I don't want to be on coach's bad side for the next however long I'm staying here. Mm-hmm. So it's like I don't want to be going into my exit interview or the, the next time out going. You got four fouls. I need you to stop playing defense. Just let them go through you. You know, just be out there controlling the ball on the offensive side. Right. He kind of realized that I'm a freshman. I need to be kind of respecting the game a little more, especially when I'm playing against guys that are two or three years older than I am. Yeah. Kispert, you know, not many clean looks, finished with 12 points and two three-pointers. And Drew Timmy also, you know, he had also had 12, but but just got seven shots while getting into foul trouble in the second half, right? Because he was... Uh, he he had uh, the the bigs all over him for Baylor, and then he got then he was you know nursing an apparent injury uh, as well, right? He was getting like massage treatments on the sideline yeah, during the game. I think he was having some hamstring cramp, cramping at that point, but a lot of it's because most of the season he didn't have yeah. to really be struggling to get to a position. He just got to it, and the ball found it. Right, right. So like this when you there was like a few guys. Right, and, and wasn't there? And then Kispert was nursing an injury too, with his arm or shoulder. Right, he might have been, or it was just a fact that he'd just been having to do so much work to kind of muscle somebody out of the way that he found a sore spot that yeah. hadn't been there all year. Right, most of, most of the time, Kispert and Timmy, their their tallest competition might have been six five, six six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, not six nine, six ten, seven foot. Yep. And I got to tell you, you know, staying up late watching uh, West Coast Conference games and listening to the announcers telling you how great Gonzaga is, you know, and 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 they're undefeated and they're playing their games and it's, they're fun to watch and they're looking good and everything. But the announcers are going out of their way to try to explain to you how fantastic this team is. And I'm just sitting watching this, thinking about the NCAA tournament. And it's like, I'm kind of like, dudes, you know, relax a little bit. We got an NCAA tournament coming. Let's see what they do. <laughs> that was my feeling during that whole season that Gonzaga had. Well, and a lot of it too, especially with Drew or uh, Dave Fleming and Sean Farnham, who are working most of those ESPN games for Gonzaga against BYU or um, Portland or whatever. They were trying to keep some kind of interest in the game because they knew by a certain point the game was already over. It's just how do we, especially since we're not there in the arena, getting to see the energy and everything, how do we keep interest in this game without basically making it a love fest on Gonzaga? Yeah, and I was watching a game against um, um, St. Mary, and Timmy you know, gets the rebound, and then he starts trekking up court with the ball. And he runs, you know, he's dribbling the ball all the way down to the foul line and then throws a pass and they're going crazy. Like, look at this, their sixth, their center can just get a rebound and he's dribbling the ball like he's a guard. Amazing. And I'm like thinking, just 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 relax a little bit, guys. You know? I don't think yeah. I don't think he's gonna be doing that against Baylor. No, he wasn't gonna be doing that against Baylor by <laughs> far, but yeah. when you're playing against teams that they're like I said, their tallest player is probably six six, maybe yeah. six seven. He didn't have to do anything more than what he normally did in those games, and that's bring the ball down if he wanted to because those guys were going to be too worried about catching on to the fast break where at times Gonzaga could play mind games with them because in all their game tape they watched, all they'd see is full-court passes for easy dunks or layups, 
and then they wouldn't know what to do. It's like all of a sudden here's Gonzaga slowing the pace down because they know the other team's just basically waiting for them to run up the court. Yeah. And they can bring the center coming up. So it was like every every time Kispert was doing that, it was like Gonzaga's got their version of Magic Johnson here. <laughs> a six nine, almost seven footer that can uh, bring the ball up court. Yeah. You really want that? <laughs> Yeah, and this is what, you know, another thing that killed Gonzaga, at least, you know, in this game against Baylor, they made five of 17 three-pointers, their lowest total of the six games. And that's a credit again. You know, part of it is just maybe a little bit of a cold shooting night because there were shots that were missed that were wide open too. But again, it's the pressure by uh, Gonzaga's, uh, by Baylor's defense. Baylor's uh, Davion Mitchell finished with 16 assists in the two final four games, the most by any player since Deron Williams in 2005 for the Illini, right? Yep. Yep, that's right. He had 16. Since seeding began in the NCAA tournament in 1979, this year's Baylor squad is the third team to win the national championship without any McDonald's All-American joining uh, joining the team. This was the first time since the 2002 Maryland Terps and the 2014 uh, UConn Huskies so, you know, maybe there, I don't know, is there a chip on the shoulder there a little bit with Baylor and Scott Drew? Like, hey, I'm looking at all the, I'm looking at this guy as an All-American, this guy's an All-American, you know, that's okay. We got four, we have, the only reason why we don't have an All-American, be quite honest with you, I think, is because they might have four in the backcourt. <laughs> in terms of Baylor, they don't recruit those guys because they know that for the most part, all they're looking for is to be the star of the team. Yeah. And Scott Drew's always looking for the next role that he needs to fill a hole. He's not looking for that guy who comes in from high school scoring 27, 28, 29 points a game. And then leaves. Because he's playing against, like, the little sisters, the poor and and motherly, that they can beat, like, 76 to nothing at halftime, and that guy doesn't play another minute after the first half's over. Yeah. So he's he's always looking for the guys that do, that have the complete game, not only on the offensive side but on the defensive side as well. Because one of Baylor's top priorities is their pressure defense. Yep. They will pressure the perimeter more than they will pressure the full court. Yep. And that's where the Gonzaga only making five to seventeen threes came in is they were taking three pointers from too far out because of the fact that that Baylor was giving them no space to be able to take the normal three pointer. Yep, I agree with that. Jared, Jared Butler became the first player with at least 20 points and 7 assists in a national title game since Syracuse's Carmelo Anthony in 2003, and he had a great NCAA tournament that year. Butler scored or assist on 38 of Baylor's 86 points. That was Butler. Baylor is the fifth school of all time to win both their final four games by more than 15 points, joining... 2018 Villanova and 1968 UCLA, and that was the uh, Lou Alcindor team in the 1960 Ohio State. I don't know. I'm just going to say it. I might be wrong. I think that might be the John Havlicek team where Bobby Knight was actually on that team. And the 1952 Kansas Jayhawks, I don't know who was on that team. I don't know if Kareem, uh, Will Chamberlain probably, uh, I don't know, maybe not. Might have been on that team, but it was definitely one of the Fog Allen teams. Yeah, yeah. The Bears never trailed, becoming the first team to win an NCAA championship game without trailing since UConn in 2000. 
and 14. Um, so let's talk about April. I thought this was pretty cool. Let's talk about April 5th. April 5th was the night that Baylor beat Gonzaga, Monday night. Let's look at some other famous April 5ths in college basketball. Who will ever forget April 5th of 1993? Chris Weber calls a timeout that Michigan doesn't have, giving UNC the national title. Yep, remember that game because it was in the closing seconds. He went down to, I think it was the left sideline and just stopped and all of a sudden looked around, called the timeout, and Steve Fisher's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> Gosh. The rest, of the, the rest of the guys, because that was the Fab Five era. Yeah, actually, that's right. It was the last year of the Fab Five before Weber left. Yeah. Um, they're just looking like, what did you just do? Right. Everyone in shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, a bad night. That's a that was a bad night for Chris Weber, huh? Yeah, that that kind of cemented <laughs> is maybe he's not the best guy for this team. And when he left, it was like, okay. Here we go. Yeah. And well, you get all the stories about what was really going on behind the scenes with Chris Weber. Well, at least it wasn't Coach Juwan Howard that did it. No. No. Juwan Howard's <laughs> a bit harder than that. And yeah. Kind of realizes what to do. And he, he teaches his team more than he coaches. Right. And you can and, see that on the court, the way they play these days. Right. And let's give some credit to the Fab, the fab guy, the Fab, uh, the fab Five, right? Because the fab, the the fab four, the four of the five were very sympathetic to Chris Weber and supported him all, all along the way after he after that timeout, right? Nobody took any. I don't think any of any of the four guys, Ray Jackson, Jimmy King, Jalen Rose, and Jalen Howard, uh, Juwan Howard. I got them all right. Um, yeah. re- really came out against Chris Weber after that, right? They were all kind of on his side. Yeah, because at that point they knew how much it. it it had really meant to him that he made that mistake. They wanted to just say, you know what, yeah, it happened. Let's move on to the next one because mm-hmm. they all yeah. figured they were back next year. Not realizing that a few days later, Chris Weber was going to say, "I'm jumping to the NBA." Yeah, yeah. But you kind of knew, like after that, maybe, hey, you know, he wants to, he wants to take the Michigan uniform off now. Yeah, when he knew he was going to be able to get some money in the NBA. Yeah. Because at that point, the NBA was going the route that it is today, where it's right. just handing out money left and right to whoever wants to get it. Yep, yep. Another famous April 5th in 2010, and this was something, if the ball would have went in. And when I think about it, maybe it was similar to the to the Sug shot a little bit. Gordon Hayward misses a half-court heave off the backboard and rim as time expired, giving Duke the title. And, and Krzyzewski... Um, he might have just been laid out on the court if that thing would have went in. That, or he would have probably <laughs> run over to Gordon Hayward and said, "Congratulations!" Right. That was a I think shot. he might have done that. Well, I know he would have did that eventually, but I don't know if he would have passed out first. No, he he wouldn't have passed out on it. He would have just been like, "Yeah, complete shock." Right. But he would have run over immediately, run over to Gordon and shook his hand and said, "Great shot, kid." Yeah. Great. And because it was that close to making it and it would have put Butler on such a map. Oh wow. Yep. The way because Butler at that time was still in the Horizon League with Valpo and Cleveland yeah. State, Bright State, Detroit, um who else was in there at that point? Yeah. Uh 
I think Loyola was still in there at that time too. Yeah, along with that's right. and all those. So it was like Butler had, at that point was making the Horizon League a better conference than what it is today because of the fact that Brad Stevens, who was the coach at that time too, before he went off to Boston, was taking this group of kids and saying, you know what, we're going to be the mid-major Hoosier story, the team that's not supposed to be there, the team that's going to do all the right things to get where we need to be. Right. Right. So let's look at some of the tournament teams and uh, some of the, you know, we're not going to look at all of them, but I picked a few out here just to recap, um, you know, and again, hey, congratulations to the Baylor Bears National Championship. Scott Drew uh, wins a national championship. What could be better for us guys as alum of Valparaiso seeing Bryce Drew and seeing Homer Drew in the stands, right? And I, I you know, and it was nice to see that they both let Scott have his moment, right? Because very easily, I don't know if it's maybe because of COVID they didn't allow it. I don't know. But Homer didn't run out there and Bryce Drew didn't run out there to hug him. They let they let Scott just soak it all in himself, right? And that's just always been the way that the Drews are. It's If you're the one in the moment, you're the one in the moment. Like if, you, if you look back at the, the shot that Bryce hit, the besides the shot itself, the scene that everybody remembers is Homer hugging Bryce after that shot went in yes. and all the, the excitement about it because you wanted to see that moment. But in this case, maybe it was COVID. Maybe it was just Bryce and and uh, Homer saying, this is Scott's day. It, make it all about Scott and Baylor. Don't make it about the Drew family. That's right. If you want to talk about the Drew family, do it two weeks from now when we're looking back at things and going how great the season was. Right. Then if bring us on as a family we can talk about it and all that kind of thing because even in the way that that uh the drews schedule things they never schedule against each other during the regular season because they don't want that storyline they want the game to be the game yes not the drew family so they always say we're never coaching against each other unless it has to happen in the ncaa tournament right and you know they'll have their day right there'll be a uh athletic there'll be a dinner with the Baylor athletic department at the end of the year, I'm sure. And then the Drews can get together and talk about the season and over that. And that's probably the better time for that. But it was good to see that. But I'm watching Bryce Drew in the stands. I mean, Bryce has to be thinking, man, I want to get one of these, right, as a coach? I think that'll be something that he works on. It's just a matter of right now he's building up a program that's still relatively new to Division One. Yeah, yeah. With the in Canyon, and they've only been around the Division One ranks for maybe six or seven years, and right. they're still trying to get them built up. And he's done a great job, especially in year one with a team that was mostly transfers. Right. If you look at roster, a lot of their guys came from other schools because they were looking for a spot where they could just get mints. Yeah, yeah. Had some unfortunate unluck, I suppose, along the way with Vanderbilt, but I think he's going to get his act together. Uh, and 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 probably move on from this position, and uh, we're gonna see we're gonna see him in the thick of it, though. I think one day it's possible, but I think also the the way that the faith is with the with the Drew family that Grand Canyon is one of those schools where he can be like that. Vanderbilt yeah. is just not in that space. They wanted it win now or get the heck out. Yeah, yeah. Like it, Vanderbilt kept trying to see themselves as the school that is supposed to always be in the NCAA tournament, always supposed to be battling for the SEC title. 
but yet they weren't putting the resources in to make that happen. Right. That's right. So good for good for Scott Drew and um, just a fantastic season. What a, it just a you know, just just a great team to to watch. One of my favorite college basketball teams. I think I would say really honestly, I'm saying this, and I know I shouldn't, but of all time, really, I mean, because I'm a, I, I like watching guard play, and those four guys, um, Teague and Butler and Mitchell, and uh, I'm missing the name there. What's the fourth guy? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Uh, was, and he's the most underrated guy on the team, too. That's, just, that's I, the I think thing. it was probably Mark Vital. Well, Vital's the big guy underneath. Yeah. Um, but anyway. He was one along with uh, the guy from Congo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Damba. Right, right. Those two guys, they're, they're going to be the most glue guys in the sense that they did everything on the inside. Yeah. But nobody's going to remember them because of the fact they weren't Mitchell... Um, and then they weren't uh, the other guys, but it's Maceo, like, Teague, yeah, 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 Teague and all that. But because they weren't the the vital one out of the four, they right. really kind of Adam Flagler is the guy. Because Flagler doesn't necessarily to me look like he's a point guard. He looks like he's more yeah. The, uh, but he was the guy I was that he was the guy I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah. Like he he was the guy that when you needed that three that the other guys were too busy uh, trying to get open, he'd be the guy that oh I'm over here hit me I got it. Yep, yep. All right, so let's let's talk about some of the other teams again now in the NCAA tournament. Uh, pick, we'll pick a few out here and we'll go through it here. So let's talk about the Creighton Blue Jays. Number one seeded Gonzaga defeated the Blue Jays 83-2 in their last 14 games. So the Ducks were hot, but I guess they couldn't find a way to beat USC. They lost to them during the year, and they lost to them in the NCAA tournament. And the funny part is is it's a Dana Altman team, and Altman usually brings in a team that's really good and ready to go. But USC just finally kind of got their glue together and found a third way to beat the Ducks. Mm -hmm. Right. And especially at a point when it mattered most. It wasn't just, say, the first game against the two in the Pac-12 season. It was in a game that, if you lose this one, season's over. Yeah. They knew how to put it together. Right. That's right. Syracuse, right? Number two seeded Houston defeated the Orange 62-46 to in the Sweet 16. Never got going in that game, Syracuse. But they were fun to watch before that. Um, And we all got to learn, you know, how good – or how good of a shooter Buddy Beheim was along the way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything? Syracuse, yeah. Syracuse is always that team that around January or February, you're like, well, it looks like they're probably out of it. They're not going to be the NCAA tournament team they normally are. And then all of a sudden, the tournament for the conference comes along, and here's Syracuse yep. doing the thing necessary to get in there. That's and they right. might have to win three or four games to do it, not just – the semifinal and the final. They yeah. get through the first round, the second round, the quarters. They do the all the steps they need to to get there. And then all of a sudden they just ride the momentum until they just don't have it anymore. And that's what happened in, in this tournament itself was they just happened to catch the momentum at the right time and they kept going. Yeah. And this is my perception of the history of Syracuse in a way. And it's kind of funny. It seems like when Syracuse has that real good Syracuse team – they struggle a little bit more in the tournament, and then when and then when it's like when they squeak in, it seems like they actually go farther. 
Yeah. I, you know, I don't it's, know if that actually is <laughs> – that's just my perception of it all because I've seen – I remember some Syracuse teams like, hey, yeah, I don't know how they got in, but then they win a couple of games. Yeah, like especially the Jerry McNamara years where it's like they had to play four Big East games to get to it. It's like what did they have to do to battle through those four games that they kept going in right. the NCAA tournament to get as far as they did, whereas the years when they came in as the perennial favorite, like 2003 when they had Carmelo – Mm-hmm. What what were they doing? Just writing Carmelo for that year? Yeah. Or doing anything to build the entire team to get to that point? Right. Yep. Let's talk about Florida State a little bit. You know, good season for Florida State. High expectations in the NCAA tournament. You know, and then losing to uh, Michigan in the Sweet 16. They kind of got hit over the head by Michigan. And they just had a hard time in that game scoring points. Right? I mean. Yeah. The ball wasn't dropping for Florida State, but um, I think they'll be back, you know, relevant again in the NCAA tournament next year. Villanova, the Villanova, Villanova Wildcats, um, they lost to number one seed at Baylor, 62-51. to 51. They hung in there, right? In the first half, they were looking good, but then just too much Baylor at the end of it. Um, the thing that hurt Villanova was the injury to Colin Gillespie, um, you know, and an early exit in the Big East tournament, casting doubt whether the Cats really had some staying power. But, um, you know, they'll be back. You know, Jay Wright will put together a good team, and we'll see them probably going far uh, in an NCAA tournament coming coming to us soon, right? Well, and Villanova also had the situation where they had a long break for COVID plus yeah. Jay Wright being out. That's right, yeah. So to overcome all that and get where they did in the NCAA tournament, you, you can't look at it as, well, what happened to them in terms of why didn't they play well. And it's not that they didn't play well. They overcame a lot of obstacles to yep. get there in the first place. That's right. It's what they had during the season to make sure they made it that far. Yeah. And I think and, that was expressed by Jay Wright after that game was over as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, he he knew that that team, you know, could, went about as, you know, as far as they could under the circumstances they found themselves in. The Arizona, I'm sorry, the Ark Arizona, the Arkansas Razorbacks, right? Number one seed Baylor defeated the Razorbacks 81 to 72 in the Elite Eight. Eric Musselman has made the Razorbacks nationally relevant again, and this team's rally from double-digit deficits in all three of its NCAA wins, you know, is something people will remember in Little Rock. Uh, the regret comes in the rally against Baylor that they just couldn't get it done against Baylor. But, you know, nobody can get it done against Baylor, right? Yeah, I mean, once Baylor starts running on you, you either have to have the gas to keep going or just hope that they don't run you so far down that you're looking at a 20-point deficit. Right, right. Let's look at the USC Trojans. Lost to uh, Gonzaga, uh, 85-66 to in the Elite Eight. The Trojans had a nice run to their uh, first Elite Eight since 2001. And thanks in large part to the Mobley brothers, Evan and Isaiah, and getting handled by Gonzaga is ultimately something that the world, you know, probably would have expected. But, um, you know, what do we, let, let's talk about Evan Mobley, right? Can we make a plea? What, what do you want to tell Evan Mobley? I know what I want to tell him. What do you want to tell Evan, Evan Mobley? That you're not NBA ready yet. You no. need to stay there year at least. <laughs> I mean... If you keep Evan and Isaiah Mobley there, you're, you're talking now junior and sophomore because they yeah. were freshman sophomore this year. Right. So you know, another year, they get more experience, opportunity to be able to grow their game 
not just grow their marketability as players, but their game overall that some NBA teams will be able to take advantage of. Right. They use. Right now, they're basically just names. They're not total players yet. Right. And that's something the NBA needs. If they want both of these guys, they need to make sure that they're playing total games to help out at the, yeah. at the level. Yeah, I would say would Evan Mobley stay in school. It was kind of the same thing that I said about Laurie Markkinen. I thought he should have stayed at Arizona a little bit longer. But in terms of Evan Mobley, I think he just needs to get a little stronger. Yeah. I mean, he's got, you know, some great <clears> – <throat> he's very intimidating under the basket, but the longer he stays in college and the longer the longer he can sit in the weight room maybe a little bit longer and get a little stronger, he's going to be impossible to handle. And yeah. if Evan and Isaiah, like you said, stay together at least one more year, I mean, USC is going to def- would definitely make some noise. And you might get two guys in All-American status or maybe almost two guys as lottery picks, at least yeah. one of them, you know. But it's probably not going to happen, right? He's probably going to leave. Yeah, I, I could see Evan deciding that he's going to want to leave and Isaiah's left to try to carry the bird, or, or carry the load yeah. of the rest of the- Right. And he's not ready for it by any means. Now, let's talk about the Houston Cougars. And, of course, we talked about them losing uh, in the Final Four to Baylor. And um, great defensive team. Um, You know, all the way around, every guy on that team can play defense. Good for Kelvin Sampson to be relevant again into the NCAA tournament. Quentin Grimes, great player um, as well. Giroux, oh, my gosh, that guy can D it up. Like, unbelievable. And Mm -hmm. what a great athlete he is. so a good season, and again, this is just another team that ran into Baylor at the end of it, right? So I'm starting to yep. wonder if some of these teams that uh, that ran into Baylor should have played, you know, could have beaten Gonzaga. Most likely could have because of the fact that they've got the body types to be able to do it. Yeah, like it, like Houston is a rather lean team, and right. that's one of the things that I think Grimes and Jerome both, if they had a little bit more body, they'd be NBA ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just need. Put on some more bulk. Yeah. yeah. And I think they need to find a three-point shooter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Some guy that can just knock them down. But, uh, you know, great effort for Houston. And probably, you know, you're always going to get that Houston defense. I think no matter – I mean, as long as Sampson's there, he's going to find guys to play defense. It's just a matter of trying to get the ball in the basket to run through six tournament games and get a national championship is going to be tough. Because they're going to run into somebody that's just going to sit behind the line and shoot. Yeah. You know, so. Loyola Ramblers, right? Um, lost to number 12 seed Oregon State. Were you surprised about that one, losing Oregon State? Did you have them winning that one? No, I didn't. I actually had them losing to Illinois. Okay, that's right. Yep. So. Yep, so uh, the Ramblers, now the Ramblers have a new coach. Yep. They've got Drew Valentine, who was at Michigan State as a player, I do believe. Okay. No, he was at Oakland. I take that back. That's his brother, right? Yeah, his brother went on to the NBA after yeah. being at Michigan State, but this one was at Oakland. Okay. As a player. So okay. he had a, a decent career. He's going to go places as a coach. Yeah. But I don't know that Loyola is going to be the same Loyola as what they've been recently. Yeah, it's always a tough transition. Yeah. Well, yeah. between the tough transition plus the type of players that Loyola is going to be looking for and not just player, but student athlete or student ambassador, because the thing that Loyola is going to be looked at now is 
the NCAA tournament, basically all you were was these rough and tumble kind of guys. But your whole story was Sister Jean. Yeah. Sister Jean, right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, uh, every, every game, you, it was always wondering, is Sister Jean there? Where is she sitting? <laughs> How many times is the camera going to find her? It was yeah. never anything about, is Loyola going to be able to continue this run? How well are they going to do it? It's all, how are we going to run the story around Sister Jean? Yeah. And I feel bad for those guys because it's like they played great basketball. But all that CBS, ESPN, and the rest thought about was Sister Jean because right. she's a hundred and some odd years old. <laughs> and always at the games and basically yeah. giving a, a report as right. to what the next game's going to be about. Yep, yep. That's TV, right? Yep. Yeah. They were good for TV, but it's by the court. Right. Okay, now yeah. it's time Now it's time for uh, fans and uh, alum for Ohio State and Illinois to put bags over their head because we're going to have to talk about Ohio State. Their little short tenure into the uh, 2021 NCAA tournament bracket, losing to number 15 seed Oral Roberts, um, 75-72 to 72 in overtime in the first round. The last 90 seconds of the ORU-OSU game consisted of a uh, Ohio State turnover, an Ohio State missed free throw, an Ohio State two missed field goals and two fouls, yielding four made free throws by ORU. Then it goes into overtime, and Oral Roberts sees a moment and won the game in, in the extra frame with key missed free throws by the Buckeyes, 9 of 18 from the stripe for the game, and among other factors, and um, they're gone. This is the one I predicted. Yeah, but they're gone. You they're did gone. Money on it, which was bold on your side. Yeah, I put a little <laughs> bit. I didn't. I didn't put the house on there. Uh, no. I, I put a little money. Okay, nothing. Nothing. I can get a. I can get a dinner out of it. Okay, so that's how much money I put on. Put on. Yeah. It. But, but just man, oh gosh, huh? That was amazing. Yeah, with Ohio State, it's like somebody needs to unravel their Wheaties box and show them that it's cornflakes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because they just get in there thinking they're the best thing since sliced bread, and they're basically the unleavened bread that nobody remembered to put the yeast into. Right. Very humble. It, very humbling experience, huh? Yeah. You know what's kind of funny is that you don't know how humbling it is until maybe you go to the Ohio Athletic Weight Room, and you're some Ohio. Here comes the Ohio basketball team. They're in there lifting weights. And then a few of the Ohio State Buckeyes football players walk in. And they're looking at you. And you're looking at them. And, and they're thinking, how did you guys lose to or- Oral Roberts? We're the Ohio State. Tough, huh? Well, but then it's kind of like you want the basketball team to go, well, then how did you lose to <laughs> How did you lose to Alabama? Well, at least they're losing to somebody good, right? Or somebody known. I shouldn't say good because Oral Roberts was good. Yeah. 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 And that's what we're forgetting about. I'm goofing around here. And we'll talk about Oral Roberts in a minute because I just love that team. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the Illinois fighting Illini. And I I think they have to take the fighting out of the Illini to talk about losing to Loyola of Chicago because they were not fighting in that game at all. I think in that game they were just the Illinois Illini. I mean, they just did. They just looked like they didn't care. I don't know yeah. how else to say it. And maybe it's the coaching too. Never one adjustment during the entire game. 
they they looked at the one scene and said we're the better team just based on the number in front of our uh, our yeah. name. Yeah, it was nothing in that game that made them look like they were a number one seed at all. And Loyola proved it by just playing defense on them. Right, that's right. Now maybe one of the most gritty. I'll call them gritty, right? One of the most grittiest teams in the NCAA tournament this year, the Oregon State Beavers, losing uh, to number two seed Houston, 67 to 61 in the Elite Eight. And we know they made a nice run to tie it 55 to 55. But where they were at one point in the season and where they ended up were just two different things. And so I call him gritty. Coach Tinkle, I kind of like that guy. He kept that team going in the NCAA tournament, making some nice adjustments along the way to keep themselves in the games. Ran out of gas at the end of that Houston game, but uh, good overall performance, I thought, by the Beavers in the NCAA tournament. And another team from the Pac-12, you know, in the NCAA tournament with success. And the thing that everybody's going to remember about this team, back in the preseason uh, coaches poll or the the media poll as to how the teams are going to pan out by the time uh, February got there, yeah, Oregon State was supposed to be 12th. Wow. Yeah, they were twelve out yeah. of twelve teams. Yeah, they ended up right around I think it was ninth or tenth. Won the Pac-12 conference tournament because some of the teams in the Pac-12 didn't get to play enough games to even feel like they were ready to be there because of the COVID protocols and everything. Yep. And Ohio State just showed up, played their games, and won the tournament, and ended up getting a twelve seed, which doesn't seem right for the Pac-12 conference tournament winner, but when they were so far down the line in the standings, it's like, that's a perfect fit because they're going to be one of those teams that, wait, how'd they get there? What are they doing there? And they made the Elite Eight. Right. Over the team that in Colorado that should have been higher seed getting there. Yep. And didn't even get out of the second round. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what, that's what happens in the NCAA tournament, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next team, the Golden Eagles of Oral Roberts uh, ended up losing to number three seed Arkansas and had a great chance to beat them. They lost 72-70 to 70 in the Sweet 16, and Musselman looked like he was about to have a coronary on the sidelines when that shot went up at the end. Uh, Oral Roberts is the most successful number 15 seed in NCAA tournament history and the first 15 to have a meaningful shot to reach the Elite Eight and right up to the final buzzer. And it's that final buzzer that is going to make it a tough loss for all Roberts and its supporters to celebrate anytime soon. What a great, I mean, you want to celebrate the season, but boy, oh boy, what a look uh, Mighty Max had there at the end, huh? Yep. It and was the right first there. Thing I with that Eastmith shot? Yeah. Gordon Hayward. Right. Yep. Right. That would have been a Gordon Hayward kind of shot because it's the team that wasn't supposed to even be there or be that far winning and does it on a, such a dramatic shot. Yeah, yeah. It would have been re- recollecting back to Gordon Hayward. Yeah. I mean, I and, and you look back at the NCAA tournament, two things I think of from this. My two takeaways in this NCAA tournament is the great Baylor Bears and one of my other moments is Oral Roberts. Not just because I had it, you know, not just because I had them on my bracket going a few places, but they're just, they were just a great, fun team. You know, we always liked the Cinderella, and they were. I mean, if you put the definition of Cinderella, it was Oral Roberts, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why they, we that's why we watched this Cinderella thing. Team. I'm sorry, I cut you they off. They were definitely the Cinderella team in this tournament. Yeah, the Cinderella team. We always liked the Cinderella teams. 
the Iowa Hawkeyes. We didn't really get a chance to see them too much. Uh, they lost to number seven uh, seeded Oregon uh, in the second round, 95 to 80. Luca Garza, 36 points, was tremendous, but uh, you know not enough. And uh, felt bad for Luca Garza, you know, crying his eyes out at the end of it, knowing his college career is over. And uh, hopefully for him, uh, bigger and better things are are coming, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Iowa's downfall during the tournament was just the fact that all they were was Luca Garza. There was nobody else from yeah. that lineup that stepped up to help him out. That's right. Nobody else to, to, to help him out. Um, and I'd like to see maybe the Dallas Mavericks draft Luca Garza because then they could come up with a nice ad slogan that they got Luca times two squared. Luca Garza and Luca Doncic. Yeah. Which may not be a bad way to go. I don't know if he's going to be available for them, but not a bad way to go. Yeah, unless they trade it up somehow. Yeah. Okay, the Alabama Crimson Tide, number 11 seed. UCLA defeated the Crimson Tide 88-78 to in overtime, and that was a nice win there. But that 11 of 25 performance from the free throw line uh, from the Tide, um, that shot 70% from the stripe for the season, right? So they lost the game. They lost the NCAA tournament on the free throw line, basically. Yep. Yeah. Like, that's one of those teams that I think, for all the guys that are coming back, they're going to treat practice free throw workouts as though it's the NCAA tournament game and work harder to make more than the eleven that they made. Yeah. Yeah. But they're they're not going to have this this widespread deficit of fourteen points that they uh, should have won because if they made all fourteen of those. They wouldn't have gone to overtime for one. And if they had gone to overtime, they would have won by four. Yeah, that's right. And they would have been in the 90s instead of the 70s. Yep. So. Yep. That'll be one of those that offseason is going to be a lot of work on the free throw line. <laughs> for sure. And, uh, you know, and boy, Alabama's, you know, once they get a good bat, you know, they got a good basketball team now, so they're going to be relevant all the way uh, through the football season to the basketball season, right? Probably the baseball team is probably pretty good too, I would imagine. I don't know, but usually usually the SEC and Alabama could put a pretty good baseball team together. Michigan Wolverines, okay? Number 11 seed UCLA defeated the Wolverines 51-49 in the Elite Eight. And, you know, they Michigan had the looks at the end, but they just could not convert, right, in that game? Yeah. Just couldn't get the ball in the basket at the end of it. And yeah, there uh, was a definite lid towards the end of the game that yeah. they just couldn't open up. Right, and one of the better games, wouldn't you say, of the whole NCAA tournament, UCLA-Michigan game? Yeah, it was one of those that definitely kept you in your seat the entire time. Right. And again, we've talked about them enough, I suppose, on the podcast today. UCLA, you know, uh, what happened to them in Gonzaga, and it was a shame. What a way to lose for UCLA. It would have been... A lot more of a Cinderella story, obviously, if it was on the other, if if they would have beaten Gonzaga, but what a great season! What a what a great uh, effort by Juzang throughout the tournament and Yaquez and and the rest of the gang there, and uh, very impressed with UCLA. And every time I looked at them, I was like, why didn't they win more games during a regular season? You know, just watching them. You, that was the kind of thing that was going through my mind watching them. Well, and some of the thing with the UCLA Bruins was COVID. Yeah. They were having to travel all over the place to try to find a place to even play games because for a while there California was closed yeah 
they couldn't play any games within the state. I mean, Stanford was looking for game, for places to play, mm-hmm. UCLA, USC. I, I think San Francisco and some of the West Coast Conference teams were even looking for places where they just had to cancel their schedule during a certain point in time in the season. Right. And, it, you know, and again, as much as this season, obviously we had an NCAA tournament, but still it was somewhat of a truncated year for a lot of teams and a lot of programs and a lot of players with COVID. So maybe, you know, hopefully next year we'll finally get a full, full everything going schedule with every with everybody clicking on all cylinders, I suppose, right? Yeah, because, I mean, even looking at Gonzaga's schedule from this past year, they had some conference games where they went a week or so without a game because of the fact that, um, there were COVID protocols at the schools or they were having to play in California. So they had to find a place. They had an entire tournament or an entire week in December they had to cancel. Right, right. Like they almost didn't even play a game in the month of December until yeah, almost... Tough. So really they were peaking at, you know, maybe a time they would have peaked earlier, but they, but yeah. at least they were peaking at the end. Yeah. Yep. Well, Chad, good. And then the... the great thing about the NCAA tournament this year too was we only lost one game to that's COVID right. protocol. Yep. That's it, right. It was unfortunate that it was BCU. the West Virginia game or the Virginia Commonwealth game. Yep. Yep. But to only lose one game throughout that entire tournament because of that was a yeah. good thing. And I I hope that we don't have to deal with this again and we can get back to where the, the tournament's all over the country. But when the NCAA can be able to say that they bubbled the thing the correct way and right. the team has followed through with it, especially after the season they've been going through, that that's something that every fan of NCAA basketball should be like giving them an ovation for. Yep. Well, Chad, it's time to close up shop. It's been great, great, great having you on talking about college basketball. It's been awesome. It, it's been an awesome tournament to talk about. So yep. it really made these weeks more exciting to, to pay attention to the games. Right. That's right. So everyone out there, you can listen to the Fan Man Podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many other platforms. Check out our past episodes. We talk, we've got football on there, Super Bowl talk on the past episodes. We've got NCAA tournament, a lot of stuff to take a look at there in our catalog. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fan Man. If you like what you heard or dislike what you heard, check out the Fan Man Twitter page. The Fan Man at the underscore fan underscore man underscore and tell me what you think.